show called Let's Talk Homeschool. This is the show where we talk about everything homeschool related. The how, what, when, where, and why. We want to affirm, encourage, challenge, and inspire you in this adventure of a lifetime and celebrate everything you get to experience along the way. Welcome to episode number 82. Today's show is entitled, Eight Who Lived Like They Were Dying, part three of eight. Today's show is about George Mueller. The 300 kids went to the table. They sat down and they began to pray a very simple prayer of thanksgiving to God, the giver of all things. And in the middle of the prayer, a knock came at the door and it was a baker. The baker said, Mr. Muller, I don't know why, but early this morning as I lay in the bed, I was awakened and something told me to go to the bakery early and to bake you some bread. The following presentation is a production of Apologia Mission, which is the 501c3 nonprofit arm of Apologia Educational Ministries. We hope you'll enjoy this message by Pastor Jerry McCarran. This audio recording is just one in the series entitled Eight Who Lived Like They Were Dying. Each one is based on the corresponding biography published by Youth with a Mission. For more information about Apology Emission, please visit our website at www.apologyemission.org. When I started reading the biographies of George Muller, I tried to come up with a title for him, and I just simply called him the Shepherd of All the Children. He was born on September the 27th, 1805. And he died on March the 10th, 1898, at the age of 92 and five months. He was a German playboy. There are numerous lessons as I went through and as I looked at the life of George Muller that impacted me. Lessons that I drew from his life. The first lesson that I learned regarding his life as I I read his biography was that no one is beyond reach. I think sometimes we classify people as beyond the reach of God or the grace of God. And when you look at the life of George Muller in his early days, you'd say this is definitely a guy that is out of the reach of the grace of God. George Muller was a thief. He was a liar. He was a con artist. He was a master at manipulation. He was devious. He was scheming. He was conniving. He was deceitful. And those are his good qualities. He enjoyed the thrill of adventure, of stealing, not to mention the illicit rewards. On one occasion, after the police had taken him to custody and turned him over to his dad for stealing, his dad took him home and gave him a good old-fashioned whooping. That night, when he collapsed upon his bed, in throbbing pain to his backside, he made himself a promise, as long as I live, I'll never do that again. But he wasn't promising that he would never steal again or that he would never lie again. He was just promising that he would do a better job at it and he would never get caught again. But he was caught again and again because George Muller was a repeat offender. The next time he was caught, he was again hauled into into the police station. He knew the procedure. Give me your name. Give me your parents' name. Give us your address and your birthday. This time he had spent several days in a very expensive inn in Brunswick in his teenage days. And 
he left without paying the bill, and he was caught slipping out the window, and he was caught by the innkeeper. The next day, he was in his cell humming a Christmas carol. It was Christmas Day. George had spent the previous five Christmases away at a very fine school. It was called the Cathedral Classical School at Halberstadt, where he had been studying the classics, and he had studied Latin and French and German, and he excelled in math. George loved school. He found school exceedingly easy for him and teachers very easy to fool. When he was only 12 years old, he he went on a drinking binge, binge with his buddies while his mother lay dying at home. And so from every aspect of his life, he was incorrigible. And so in his teenage years, we find him again. He's back in jail. And he was going to remain in jail till January the 16th. And it was early that morning when he heard the jailer walking down the cobblestone pathway to his cell. He heard the key hit the cell door. And the jailer stepped in with a sneer on his face and said, Young man, your father has come to set you free. But hearing what he's going to do to you, I dare say you're not going to be free. And the jailer began to laugh. As he and his father climbed into the horse-drawn carriage to make the day journey back to the Muller's household, the only words that were spoken was when they first got into the carriage, when Johann Muller turned to his son and he said, what would your mother think of her oldest son? Answer me that. And it was silence for the remainder of the trip. After traveling all day and, refi- and, re- and going uh, to the Muller home, that day George received the longest, harshest beating from his father he had ever endured. And it was several days before he could ever walk properly. And so as we begin the journey, here's a man that's incorrigible. Here's a young man that cannot be reached. Just give up on him. The second lesson I learned is that never underestimate the power of evil. And we see that throughout the Word of God, especially in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the author keeps saying, don't be deceived by sin. We see it in the life of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And how many times is it we think we can sin and nobody's going to catch us, nobody's going to, under, is going to grasp what we have done. After this episode, of course, he lapses back into evil again. But his father, first of all, ships him off to uh, Halley University. Halley University had a divinity school. And in that divinity school, there were over 900 divinity students. Uh, He wrote in his journal some years later that out of the 900 divinity students, I only knew of nine who really believed in God. Now, his father ships him off to Halley University to go to divinity school because the father wants him to become a Lutheran pastor. Now, the father wants him to be a Lutheran pastor, not because his father's a believer, because his father wasn't a believer and never was a believer. He wanted his son to have a position of respect and a position of honor and a position of security. And he thought, you know, being a Lutheran pastor is a good place for him to begin. And also, it was a good place for him to hire a tutor to watch over his son as he's at the university, but also the tutor's main job was to report to the father every weekend regarding the activities of his son. George loved the university. He loved the new challenges, the new surroundings, but he drifted back to his own ways again. On one occasion, he took all of his books that he had purchased for the next semester, and he sold them. 
And he took the money that his father had given him and uh, with the money from his books and from the money for the tuition for the next semester, he along with his, some of his buddies took an extended vacation. And they went away and they gambled and they drank and they caroused around and they partied endlessly. Well, when he came back, he recognized I've got a real problem. I'm facing the new semester. I have no money to pay for this semester. I've already sold the books for this semester. And what am I going to do? Well, a few days later, his check from his father came in. And so he came up. This is the nature of evil. He came up with this plan. And his plan was he, he started broadcasting throughout the dorm that his father had sent him another generous check. And how much he loved his dad for sending him his money and helping him through school. And he took the money and he hid it in the false bottom of the trunk in his dorm room. And then he walked right out the front door. And all of his buddies thought he was just going for a walk. But what he did, he slipped back around to the side. He left the window open. He, he came into his dorm room, took his hammer, smashed the trunk, smashed everything in his room. And then he slipped back out the window. He came back several minutes later, walked right back through the dorm where all the buddies were standing there, and he told everybody what a great night for a walk, and he went to his dorm room, and everybody heard him scream, oh, somebody has broken into my room and stolen all of my money. Well, all of his dorm buddies came running, and they said, who would have done something like this? I mean, who can ever do anything like this? Well, over the next several days, all of the buddies, the divinity students, had such compassion upon him that they took up a contribution. They took up enough money and gave it to him and as an act of compassion. And, and of course, he was very grateful for it. He was able to pay his tuition for the next semester, buy his old books back, go back to the tavern and, and pay his drinking bill, pay off all of his gambling debts, and still had money left in his pocket. He was the life of the party. He continued to study by day, gamble, and drink by night. George Muller was everybody's friend. The third lesson I learned is not only never underestimate the power of evil, but there's power in invitation. Now, I don't know how many times I've, I've admonished you and encouraged you and me and all of us that, that we need to invite people to come to worship and meet our family, but more than that, to meet God. I, I, I've admonished you from time to time to, to invite people to come to your small group. One of George's dearest friends and partners in crime was a young man by the name of Beta. Beta was not a leader. Beta was a follower. Anything that George suggested, Beta would do. And they were very close buddies. One day, they were walking across the campus on the way to class, and he informed George, said, guess what? Tonight, I'm going to a Bible study. He informed George that he was going to a Bible study, and George laughed in his face. He said, Beta, you've got to be kidding me. You're going religious on me? Now, they're at a divinity school. You're going religious on me? You're getting into this God stuff, and you're going to be reading and believing the Bible and all of that? Tell me, Beta, what do they do at this Bible study? And he said, well, I think you'd really enjoy it if you'd just give it a try. They read the Bible, and they pray, and we sing, and sometimes they even read a sermon. He surprised Beta and said, I'll go with you tonight. Well, that night, uh, they went, 
They walked into the library of the Wagner residence. Everybody sat cozily around a warm fire. It was winter outside. George had never felt so out of place in all of his life. He was more comfortable in a jail cell. Someone ran up and with a smile greeted him, welcomed him, put a hymn book in his hand. And the people began to sing. And George looked around the room and all these strangers and he'd never seen people sing like this before. And then as soon as the singing was over, Mr. Wagner, the man of the household, said, let's pray. And everybody got down on their knees and they began to pray. George, in all of his life, had never seen anybody on their knees talking to God. When it was over with, they started Bible study. They read a few scriptures and then someone read a sermon. During that particular time in Germany, it was illegal for anybody who was not an ordained pastor to present a sermon. And there was no one ordained among them. But it was acceptable and it was legal if someone wanted to read a sermon by an ordained minister. And so someone read a sermon that evening. He had never seen such divinity, such dignity regarding the divine. He had never witnessed such sincerity, such devotion. And as he and Beta walked home that evening, Beta asked him, well, George, what do you think? What do you think about tonight? George was still wrestling with what he had just experienced. He said, well, Beta, I didn't think much about it. Not much really at all. But there was something there. These people sang as if they were singing about someone they knew. These people prayed as though they were talking to somebody who was in the next room. He heard people read from the Word of God as if they believed every word. And this was troubling to George. George returned to the Wagner's residence the next night and the next night and the next night. And within just a few days, he was on his knees asking God to forgive his many sins and to give him another chance. It was in the spring of 1830 that he was immersed. He was baptized. His parting days were over. His drinking days were done. His gambling now was but his memory. His seminary friends found the new George a bit revolting because he wasn't a partier anymore. A few days later, he wrote his father a letter. And in that letter, he told his father about his newfound freedom in Christ. And that his father no longer send me any more money because from this time forward, I'm going to devote my life to serving God. And I'm going to trust him completely for everything right down to the last red cent. He preached occasionally and people would give him some money. He tutored young men in Latin and in Hebrew and in Greek and in French and, and they would give him a donation. And one occasion he even stayed at an orphanage. And as he stayed at the orphanage, it was there that he saw firsthand the need for someone to care for the children. On one occasion, he prayed to God to give him a fresh vision. And as he prayed to God to give him a fresh vision, he was about to preach in this small church. And before he got up, he said, Lord, just tell me what I need to tell these people. He walked to the pulpit, and I have never done this. I don't trust myself enough to do it. He let his Bible fall open, and he put his finger down on the text. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that 
changed his life. The fourth lesson I learned is that uh, there's power in being available for God. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah 6 verse 1 begins, it said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Then Isaiah goes and talks about the seraphim, praising God. And then God says, who shall go and who shall speak for me? And he said, Lord, here am I. Send me. After graduating from Halle University, he took a small church with only 18 members. And as he stood in front of that little church, he told them, he said, I want you to know that I've I will serve this church as long as I feel that this is where God wants me to be. But I want you to know that if God ever calls me to another place, to another ministry, you have got to grant me my release. And they agreed with him. He became quite popular in that area, traveled extensively. He finally met and fell in love with a young lady. Her name was Mary Groves. She was highly educated in French and in Latin and Hebrew and and all of the classics, and she was eight years older than he. Before he proposed to her, however, he wanted her to know the life of a minister. He sat down and asked her several questions. Are you willing? Are you willing to, to live all of your life and to suffer for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to give up all of the earthly possessions for the cause of Christ? He wanted her to know about all the demands of ministry. She said, I'm willing. They were married in a very simple ceremony on October the 7th, 1830. After the ceremony, they had a cup of tea with their friends. And as he was loading up her trunks, he was surprised at the number of her trunks and the weight of the trunks that he was lifting up into the stagecoach. And he said, you know, I don't know. I didn't know you had so much stuff. And she replied, you don't think my family was penniless, do you? I have my mother's china. I have some family heirlooms. I have some tapestries. I have all the flatware that's been handed down from generations. And these are going to brighten up our house considerably. A week later, after George came home from his little church, he walked into his bachelor's pad and he looked around. There was a tapestry and all the things that she had brought. Everything had been scrubbed and dusted and polished and rearranged, and George didn't know how to tell her. His house looked like all the other houses that he visited, houses that were just cluttered with stuff and with things. And he thought with himself, if I'm going to answer the call of God, I must release these things for the sake of the people that they may know God. I do not want to reflect this world. So I began to talk to Mary and said, Mary, it has to go. She said, what has to go? He said, it all has to go. All this stuff, the china, the silverware, the flatware, the tapestries, it all has to go. God is calling us to sacrifice for the sake of the lost and for the sake of the poor. The next day when George came home from visiting <clears throat> in the poor district, he walked in. 
It was all gone. She handed him the proceeds from the sale. She said, distribute it to the poor. The next night after dinner, they went for a walk. And he said, I've been doing some praying and some thinking today, and there are other changes that we need to make in our life. He said, I never want to take a salary from the church again. We're going to depend totally upon gifts from God. During that day, the way a pastor or preacher or minister made his living in a local church, people were so poor, but the way they really made their salary was by renting pews. And the wealthier you were, the more you paid for a pew down front. Now, in Churches of Christ, we'd have to rent the ones at the back. But, but what he saw there was this wasn't right. He went back and re- reread the words of James, and James talked about how we should never give prominence to somebody of wealth over people who are poor. And so he said, I've noticed that on, on days of worship that the rich are here, the poor have no place to sit. They have no place to gather. So that night, they went down the little church, and he had a box. He nailed a box upon the back of the little church building on the back wall, donations for the cause of Christ. And uh, from that time forward, it was free seating for everybody. Now, it was difficult for them salary-wise, because automatically their salary began to plummet considerably. They noticed that they didn't have as much as they once had But he says, we are going to depend upon the gifts of God. The fifth lesson I learned is that when we give our hearts to God like that, when we truly surrender to God, we can depend on God to always come through. The very heart of his life is Philippians 4 verse 19. When in Philippians 4 verse 19, he says, my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And this is where he built all of his life around that text and several texts in the book of of Psalms. One time, to show you his dependency upon God, one time they sat down for dinner. The table was set. Water was in the glass. There was not the smell of food in the kitchen. They had no food. And so he said, Mary, we shall offer up a prayer of thanks for what God is about to bring. And in the middle of that prayer, there was a knocking at the door. And a woman had arrived with a fully cooked ham. On another occasion, when they hit another snag and they had nothing to eat, while they prayed, a knock came at the door. And a woman stood there with freshly baked bread. And Mary asked her, what is your name? She said, I bring this in the name of Jesus. She handed the bread and she left. They learned very early in their ministry that God always comes through. They never missed a meal. That to trust God fully, you have to give away your extra. Pretty tough theology, isn't it? In 1832, they moved to Bristol. Bristol was a very busy, bustling city. And like any city, there were dirty, small children standing and begging on every street corner. And then there was a cholera epidemic. Bodies began to pile up on the sidewalks like stacked firewood. Thousands of children now were without parents and without homes. 
And so George announced to his new church that they were going to start caring for the children. And so he started what he called a breakfast club. He invited all the kids in. His church was very poor. But he said, we're going to supply for every children, every child who comes. We're going to give them bread, and we're going to offer them the bread of life. And they came first by 10, 15, and then by the hundreds. One day when George was returning from a poor part of town, he'd been in a cobbler shop. And as he rounded the corner, he bumped into a little girl, hollowed eyes, dirty dress, ragged dress, and she was holding onto the hand of her little brother. Little girl, he said, was in his journal. He said she was about, oh, I'd estimate about six years of age, and she begged him for pennies. She said, me ma's gone with the cholera, and me dad went to the mines and didn't come back. Would you please help? He knelt down, looked into her eyes, and said, what is your name? She said, my name is Emily. He said, can you spell it? She said, E-M-I-L-Y. He reached in his pocket, and he had a few pennies, and handed to them, to her. And She grabbed the hand of her little brother and disappeared down a dark alley. As he watched her go, he began to ask himself, where will Emily spend the night? And where will she spend the next night? And who's going to care for her? And who's going to love her and her little brother? This was his calling and his mission, his reason for living. He goes back to his little church now and he says, we're, not going, we're going to increase our our plans. He said, now I want to start, start some orphanages. I want to build some orphanages. And I want to start what I, I call the spiritual institute. And I, I want to take in children from the streets. And, and as a church, we're going, to, we're going to do this. And we're going to build houses for all the homeless children. And, and we're going to have Bible classes across the city. And we're going to buy Bibles. And we're going to distribute it around the world. And we're going to publish tracts. And we're going, to, um, we're going to send missionaries. Now, you can imagine the shock of this little church. And he said, and guess what? We're going to do it debt-free. And we're never going to ask for a penny. We're going to depend wholly and totally upon the gifts of God. He is going to supply every need. He opened his first orphanage on a street called Wilson Street. He first housed about 130 girls up to the, about the age of seven. But then he noticed all the other little kids that needed a place to stay, so he began to dream, and God gave him a vision to, to start some other places. And, but then complaints began to pour in from the neighborhood because you're bringing in all these kids, and it's noisy, and it's congested around here, and they have no place to play. And when they get sick, they spread it to everybody, and... So he began to think, you know, you're right. So he began to pray for some land. And he found some land, but he needed the money. And he began to pray. And one thing you notice as you read, there's a book about, uh, I, started, I was reading his, his book about his prayer journal. By day, he always, he never said, Lord, just supply. He always gave a specific amount every time. 
And somehow, he always got what he asked for. So he found this plot of 13 acres, but he needed to buy, and he had no money. His ministry had now spread around the world. People were hearing it. There were no computers. There were no cell phones. A little girl from Australia, from Austria, sent him some pennies that she had made from selling hen eggs at a marketplace. There was a shepherd in Australia that sent him the profits from the last shearing. There was one young man who auctioned off the autographs of famous kings. He would get in the mail. People would send packages of jewelry, gold and silver. And, and all kinds of pearls. People would just come by and leave stuff on his doorstep. Things that didn't have a whole lot of material value, but it was significant from the giver's standpoint, like the woman who came and gave her two cents to Jesus. One day he looked on the doorstep and someone had left him five thimbles. Some days people left him some candles. And all of this just began to accumulate and began to pour in. And it came from around the world, and it came from the poor. But this did not surprise George. He expected it because God had promised it. Eventually, over the years, he opened up five orphans' homes, which through the years provided spiritual nourishment, bread for the body, clothes for the body, and a warm place to stay for over 10,000 orphans. And he never had any debt. But it wasn't always easy. He tells the story one time in his journal. He came in early one morning and the 300 orphan, 300 orphans, this one house were standing around. Plates were all at the table. And one of his helpers came up and said, there is no food. No food whatsoever. He said, tell the children to take their places, and we're going to thank God for daily bread. The 300 kids went to the table. They sat down, and they began to pray a very simple prayer of thanksgiving to God, the giver of all things. And in the middle of the prayer, a knock came at the door, and it was a baker. The baker said, Mr. Muller, I don't know why. But early this morning, as I lay in the bed, I was awakened. And something told me to go to the bakery early and to bake you some bread. So I got up at 2 o'clock this morning, went to the bakery and started baking. And I have got bread for all of the children. So they poured out all these kids, grabbed all this bread, took it out, distributed it, you know, among all the tables. And he's in the process of finishing the prayer. Another knock comes at the door. He goes to the door, opens it up. It was a local milkman. He said, Mr. Muller, hate to interrupt today, but a, a wheel just broke on my wagon. I have all of this fresh milk here, and I would like to give it to the children before it spoils. Would you help me unload it? That day, they had their bread, then they had their milk. Visitors from around the world came to see what God was doing through this one man. And one of the visitors was an up-and-coming author. I think you've heard of him. His name was Charles Dickens. 
Charles Dickens had just published a book about the struggles of children on the streets and the poorhouses. It was a book called Oliver Twist. And Dickens had come that day because he had heard that he had heard some things about his orphanage that didn't sound good. So he just came to just sort of check things out. And Muller said, just take Mr. Dickens anywhere he wants to go. Let him go in any room, talk to any child. When Dickens came back, he said, I've never seen anything like this. Over the next several days, he wrote several pieces in the paper commending Mr. Muller for all the good that he had done. In his lifetime, George Muller took in during that day value about $7.5 million, a king's ransom. In today's currency, it would compare to about $150 million. Not one time did he ever send out a request. And he personally documented in his journal the answer to almost 50,000 prayer requests. He personally answered over 3,000 letters annually without a secretary. At the age of 70, he turned the orphanages over to his son-in-law. And he traveled the world to the age of 92. And he preached to millions of people. You know, 70 is retirement, isn't it? Something like that. 70 to 90. Two, he's going to China, he's going to Turkey, he's going to Austria, he's going around the world preaching Christ. At the age of 93, he came home. And as I finished out this particular biographer, it was on a Sunday morning. He had just preached that morning. He's 92 and five months. He had preached in Bethesda Chapel. And he spoke of how Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as he spoke, his face, they said, just sort of shined. And he told the church, you know, I'm a happy old man. I walk about my room and say, Lord, I am not alone, for you're still with me. I've buried my two wives and my children, but you're still with me. I'm never lonely or desolate with you and with your smile, which is better than life itself. About a month later on Wednesday... March the 9th, 1898, George Muller was now 92 years of age. He completed his usual duties at the orphanage, and he confessed to his son-in-law, Jim Wright, that he hadn't been feeling well. and having difficulty getting up and getting himself dressed. And, of course, Jim told him, said, you know, George, maybe I need to get someone to help you in the morning to get up and get dressed. And he turned to Jim and he said, Jim, I know you can arrange it. But Jim, you arrange it after tomorrow. After tomorrow, you send me a helper. But tomorrow never came for George Muller. That night, George led the prayer meeting at number three orphan house. Then he went up to his room. He read his Bible. And throughout his lifetime, he read the Bible from cover to cover over 300 times. Then he retired to bed. Around 5 o'clock in the morning, they found him. He had been on his knees praying, and he had died peacefully. By 9 o'clock, the whole of Bristol was in an uproar. George Muller, the beloved father to 10,000 orphans, was dead. Bells all over the city tolled. Hundreds of people flocked to the orphanage to pay their respects. 
The following Monday, the biggest funeral service in the history of Bristol took place. All of the shops and businesses in the city were closed, and thousands of people lined the streets to catch a glimpse of the funeral procession as it wound its way from number three orphan house to Bethesda Chapel, where the funeral service would be held. As the procession passed Bristol Cathedral, the bells tolled, flags were flown at half-mass, and as of a custom in Victorian times, the windows of all the houses in the city were draped with black. About 1,500 orphans, all those who were old enough to walk the distance, marched in rank and file behind the coach, uh, carrying George Muller's coffin. The children were joined by hundreds of men and women who had grown up in the orphanage, including some who had been in the original orphanage on Wilson Street when it opened in 1836. Thousands of mourners stood quietly outside the church as the funeral service took place. There was no way for them all to fit inside. After a final hymn was sung, the procession made its way from Bethesda Chapel to the cemetery. Over 100 carriages joined in the procession, including one carrying the mayor of Bristol and his family. 7,000 people stood respectfully at the cemetery as George Muller was buried under a yew tree between the two wives, Mary and Susanna. The funeral service was reported all over England, and news of his death went on the telegraph wires around the world. The Daily Telegraph wrote that George Mueller, Muller had robbed the cruel streets of thousands of victims, the jails of thousands of felons, and the poor houses of thousands of helpless children. And how had he done this? The newspaper reported he did this. He told the world it was a result of prayer. And the newspaper went on and said, the, the cynicism of the day will sneer at this declaration, but the facts remain. George Muller had truly learned the lesson of being a good steward of God's money. He went from being a boy who stole from his father and a young man who used whatever means he could to swindle money from his friends to a man God trusted with a fortune. A man who kept so little for himself that when he died, he had only a few hundred dollars. And most of that was in a rare few pieces of furniture that he owned. In his lifetime, over half a million Bibles were distributed. Millions of tracts were given away. Sunday schools were started around the world. Uh, he even supported the work of Hudson Taylor. We'll be talking about Hudson Taylor. All of his missionaries at one time in the China Inland Missions. George Muller was not a man driven by pride or by greed. He was a humble man who allowed huge sums of money to pass through his hands. He recognized that it was God's money, not his. And it was to be used in ways that would demonstrate God's love for people. Everything George Muller did was toward furthering that end of glorifying God. And as a result, thousands of people's lives were touched and changed. And today, the lives of those George touched as well as the manner in which he lived his own life, are a demonstration to every Christian, every, everywhere and every time of the impact of a life of simple faith and trusting in a great God. I hope you're enjoying this series entitled Eight Who Lived Like They Were Dying. This is Let's Talk Homeschool, and we are your hosts, Davis and Rachel Carmen. We want to thank our sponsor, Apologia Educational Ministries. And we're going to leave it at that for today. We'll close with, as always, we're walking by faith and enjoying the homeschooling 
adventure of a lifetime.